people struggling, people dying. Every day's another headline. While people cheating, people lying, leaving everybody else behind. We can wait for somebody else to come along. We can get on our feet and shout it. Welcome to the R Wisconsin Revolution podcast, where we talk about progressive issues and how we feel it needs to be dealt with. I'm here with my co-host Anders Hanhan. How you doing today, Anders? I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah, everything, all things considered, pretty good is a good state to be in. But obviously, we're going to start with the conversation about Roe v. Wade, as you all know and have heard the news by now. Roe v. Wade has been overturned by the Supreme Court. Now, we knew this was going to happen due to the leaked uh, draft that came out a little a few months ago. Um, So it's not a huge surprise. But, you know, the the shock of it actually happening is always a little bit harder than knowing the news. So, you know, there's a lot of initial reactions and we'll kind of get into our own personal reactions. But yeah, I want to get your thoughts on it, Anders. Um, What was your initial reaction? How are you feeling about it? What did you kind of see like online? What did you see in the streets on people's thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, this is silly to me because even though there's a a substantial chunk of America that is personally pro-life, um, the vast majority of the country, usually depending on the poll, 70 to 80 percent believes in that like the freedom to choose, right? The freedom to make a choice from person to person. Um, so first of all, just like a vastly unpopular decision, um, if we're looking at like governance, um, you know, what, what I think is really interesting when we're talking about these issues of access to abortion, especially when you hear people, you know, like neoliberals coming out and saying, um, you know, this is a shame. It shouldn't, you know, Hillary Clinton tweeted, it shouldn't be harder to get an abortion than getting an AR-15. At the same time, I'm like, I feel like this is an excellent time to push for Medicare for all. Why? Because Medicare for all is the only way that we ensure universal abortion access. And honestly, like, I think when we talk about this, like, court case and the Supreme Court saying that, um, you know, overturning this ruling, in reality, we really know that the job to enshrine this law, it's a legislative task. And the Democrats have the majority of both houses of Congress right now in the presidency. Under Obama, in fact, they had a supermajority. And he said the first law that he would sign into law as president would be a law codifying Roe versus Wade. He ended up not doing that, um, leading us to where we are now. I think the other thing that I've noticed online is people still can't get past 2016 with this thing. And they're saying, well, if Bernie had helped Hillary more, then Hillary would have been, you know, would have gotten elected and she would have gotten to a point, you know, the Supreme Court justices instead of Kavanaugh, Gorsuch and um, 
Coney Barrett. But at the same time, and, and somebody tweeted this and I can't remember who, but she chose a pro-life running mate. Like who's, if she chose a pro-life running mate, who's to say that she would choose a pro-choice Supreme Court justice? Um, I think it's, it's really silly to go back and put this on like Jill Stein and Bernie Sanders and, and everybody else when we should really just be saying, if we're going backwards, let's acknowledge that it was a failure of the Democratic Party as a whole to not make sure, to not ensure that this was codified because we could have avoided this whole situation if we had just made it law. We can acknowledge that that was the mistake and now we need to do something about it, ideally passing Medicare for all, which is the only way that you can have universal abortion access. Because actually the other issue that doesn't get talked about after this is the fact that even though we had Roe versus Wade before, and even though that right was protected, abortion was nearly inaccessible to a vast swath of the country. So even though we had Roe versus Wade, abortions were expensive, abortions were, you know, there were only a few clinics in many states where people could get them. The only way to ensure that everybody can get an abortion affordably is to pass Medicare for all. And I think that should be the messaging going forward. Yeah, exactly. And I think you hit the the nail on the head there when you said that Hillary Clinton had a running mate who was pro-abortion. And it's not like things have changed to this day. Pro, because pro-life. Oh, um, yeah, pro-life. yeah, I'm sorry, pro-life. But it's not like things have changed today because, for example, uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, endorsed Henry Cuellar, the pro pro-life Democrat in Texas. Texas. So, so, I mean, I mean you, can you can say, say you know, know, that they support, you know, pro, pro-abortion pro rights, but they continue to make actions that would, would say otherwise. But going back a little bit, uh, it was the Freedom of Choice Act that Obama said he would codify into law as his first act but in 2009 as soon as he got inaugurated obama said that the legislation to codify abortion rights into federal law is not the highest legislative priority so they basically put it off and never really got to it and here we are to this day and you know now it's overturned but i also want to talk about a few other things that that led to this decision because one ruth bader ginsburg should have retired um, everybody knows she had, everyone knows that she had health issues. She already had cancer. Um, so she should have been, she should have retired and then they could have filled that seat earlier. Also, uh, this is, this is public knowledge. The Obama administration used the, the, the seat of, uh, the Supreme court seat as a, a voting crutch for voters. They did not yeah. actually the seat push that the, was supposed yeah. to be in America Arland. Yeah. They didn't push for it so they could use it as an election issue. Exactly. So they were trying to force voters to vote for Hillary so that she can fill the seat. But it was a bad gamble on their part. So they made two pivotal mistakes. One, they obviously did not uh, encourage Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was definitely had had illness at the time to retire and then they not push hard enough to fill the seat, the Supreme court seat, um, which are two pivotal issues that led to this direct decision, which in which, um, Trump was allowed to fill those seats. 
So those are some issues that a lot of people don't talk about as well. That's regardless of how the election went with Hillary and obviously the the, the supermajority Democrats didn't uh, codify Roe v. Wade into law. But some of the reactions that I thought were interesting was from a few rallies that were around the country. So I know in Texas they were having rallies. And at one of the rallies, uh, a, a female was being interviewed by CNN and she was pretty upset that she was getting text messages from the Democratic Party or Joe Biden's campaign because they were getting fundraising text messages and she was mad because they didn't do enough to codify Roe v. Wade and, and you're using this as a fundraising mechanism to fill your campaign coffers. And she was like, you know, my 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 rights shouldn't be a fundraising mechanism, which I agree because you guys had so much time to do something about it and you didn't do anything yet. You're fundraising off this issue. Well, and, you know, even further, you know, what happens if you donate to the Democratic uh, Senate campaign committee, that money goes to Joe Manchin. If you donate to the Congressional Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, you know where that money goes, it goes to Henry Cuellar. So, like, if you donate to the Democrats, they are literally giving that money to people who have voted against codifying abortion rights. So it's it's absolutely silly. And they're dangling a carrot again to try to make money. And that breaks down to, I think, the real reason that Roe was never codified in the first place was that. When you have this right protected enough where people aren't upset with you, but you also, you know, there's that still that lack of security and that uneasiness, then every time an election comes around, you can use that issue to motivate people to donate their money to you. Instead of talking about, you know, moving past that issue and getting onto things that would um, improve people's material well-being, we're still focusing on two or three small issues that have polarized the country instead of just addressing them once and for all and getting it over with. Um, Which I, I think is, you know, it's all, it's all part of a a fundraising scheme, you know, to make the next election. I mean, how many times have we been told this election is the election of your lifetime and you need to just go, go vote for any Democrat this time, give us power this one time. I mean, look, I was at the Democratic Party of Wisconsin convention last weekend and Representative Pocan, Senator Baldwin, um, AG, Josh Call and Governor Evers all use that line. They were talking about how this is the election of your lifetime. Just give us this power this one time and we will protect your abortion rights. And he's like, homie, we already went out and voted for you in 2020 and gave you all the power you wanted. In 2018, we went out and we gave the Democrats every statewide office in the state of Wisconsin. And you, what did you do? What did you do? And I understand there are the issues with the legislature and stuff like that. But like the fact that, you know, there was a story that came out or a tweet um, from the Cap Times about how Mandela Barnes was bragging because the um, Friday, the day that the decision came out, was his best fundraising day, like of his campaign including doing better than the day that his campaign kicked off last last summer and i'm like it's it's gross that's gross that you're using the day that women's rights are getting taken away to re, to rake in money for more ads and you know for more you know whatever the hell they're going to use that money it it just makes me so upset like it's it's disgusting and then they go and brag about it which is even worse 
Yeah, it's it's very disturbing, um, especially in my opinion, because not only are they using this as a uh, fundraising mechanism, but they're also using it as a ploy to act like, you know, had we had more seats, we would have done something about it. But again, going back to what we said, they had a super majority and they didn't do anything about it. So it's 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 kind of like this rinse and repeat situation. It's like, hey, we just need you guys to vote harder, vote harder and elect more of us and we'll do exactly what we say we would do. And that never really tends to materialize. What we tend to see is we see promises made promises not kept and it goes over and over and over and over again so it's frustrating um we already know how this game works but i think one of the pivotal things that comes out of this is that i think people are starting to wake up i'm seeing a lot of people seeing that hey maybe this is all a ruse you know like we've we've been here before and we could have done something about this and i think that's kind of the silver lining out of it all is that people are starting to see that it's all BS, but it's also frustrating, like you said, because people are seeing record fundraising days as well. So some people are waking up while others are continuing to believe in the same BS that they've been told for the last 50 years that, yeah, we'll, we'll protect Roe v. Wade. We'll, we'll pass it, pass legislation to codify it. But now it's even worse now because now it's emboldened the right wing. Now they're like, well, let's take a step further. Let's let's go after gay marriage. Let's go after LGBTQ rights. Let's go after um, let's go after. I don't, well, obviously, Clarence Thomas don't want to do this because his wife is white. But you know, uh, let's go after interracial marriage. So all these things that you know are rights to this day are going to be looked at, and and it and it's scary because what if you know what if um, they do ban gay marriage again? We're literally going backwards in, in time instead of progressing in time. I and and that's my big issue with vote blue no matter who. That's always been my big issue is that philosophy is empowering the right. Every time that we like settle for a neoliberal um, presidency like Obama that doesn't accomplish anything, and then we nominate somebody who is looking to continue that failed philosophy like Hillary Clinton. That empowers people like Donald Trump to come out and run the country like a fucking lunatic. And you know what that means? When we end up with Joe Biden and he does nothing because he's done, he's done even less than Obama did. When we end up with Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg in 2024, who the fuck is going to go and vote for them? Nobody. We're literally, and that's the issue that moderate Democrats don't understand is that neoliberal policy is what is empowering the right wing to run people like Donald Trump and like Ron DeSantis. It's, that's the issue, is that we're creating a cycle where Democrats' failure to do anything substantive is then the reason that we're coming around and getting people like, like Donald Trump in charge. So until Democrats understand that they actually have to do something, like anything, like just cancel some student debt, like decriminalize marijuana, um, those can all be done through those can both be done through executive order if you literally just do some of the things you promised you would it would help to quell this feeling on the right that they can just run lunatics and kick everybody's ass in elections well that's, so also that's how you end up with quite, people like rebecca clayfish yeah and and that's also the question that i wanted to present is even though roe v wade was overturned the question is 
is that going to really motivate enough people to go out and vote in the midterms, considering Joe Biden has not really done anything as president? Because people are a little pumped up right now. People are a little bit pumped up right now, but are they going to stay motivated? People always have that like little bump when things happen, but then it kind of like, you know, uh, levels out or it goes back down when the midterms well, come but, but the other thing is, so people went out, Democrats voted in 2020, like their lives depended on it, just like they asked, you know, like Pelosi said, go vote like your lives depend on it. We did. We gave them Congress. And when it came down to protecting abortion rights before this decision came out, they didn't do anything. So even if people are motivated about the abortion issue, which I think they are, why would they go vote for a party that failed to protect them and in fact is running candidates that are opposed to protecting that like henry cuellar is on the ballot why would anybody go vote for him if the issue that's motivating them is abortion and i and and again i said this before but the the key messaging here what the democrats need to understand is the way that you protect abortion rights and the way that you provide abortion for everybody all those people like hillary clinton who act like abortion is her number one issue Campaign on Medicare for all. That's the way that you get everybody access to abortions universally. Exactly. And on that point, one of the reasons why we need Medicare for all is because the overturning of Roe v. Wade is disproportionately going to hurt women in poverty and women of color because they have less access to healthcare in general. Um, so when it comes to having safe pregnancies, Obviously, they usually have, and, and especially black women, they have the, the highest mortality rate amongst anybody in the, uh, in the American population because they have less access to health care. So that's a huge issue. But now it's going to get even worse because the majority of women who seek abortions are women who already have children and they are they're in poverty. So it's not like they're just like, ah, they're just messing around with a whole bunch of guys and they're just getting pregnant and just have no, they have children. Most of them have children already and they're just like, I just can't afford to bring another child into this to this world because I just don't have the funds. So this is disproportionately going to hurt women in poverty. So I and I tweeted this through the OWR account earlier is that th- make no mistake about this. This is class warfare at its finest. This is going to hurt women in poverty. This isn't going to hurt wealthy women or wealthy white women. This is going to help hurt poor women and poor women of color because they are the ones who are disproportionately have to get abortions based on need, not want. Right. One of my favorite reactions, sorry, one of my favorite reactions to this decision was from Crystal Ball. She said, like, let's be clear. This is not banning abortions for wealthy white women. Wealthy white women have always been able to get whatever medical procedures they wanted, right? All that we're doing is we're keeping poor women of color from having the right to an abortion. Wealthy white women in this country have always been able to do whatever they want. It's, you know, we talk about this idea of intersectionality of, of, and, and like we, we need to elect a woman president. We need to elect a poor president that understands what it's like to not have access to these things, right? Because the Hillary Clintons of the world will always be able to have whatever medical procedures they want. It's they can like me, I'm poor. poor yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's like it, we're it's it's it is class warfare, and I think that's the really important thing to point out. And the more and more you get people to understand that, 
part of the abortion issue, which people universally care about, then you can get them to start to pay more attention to the issues like universal health care, which right now are seen as, oh, that's like a future, you know, we'll get that done in the future. The more and more you can get people to understand the class inequity of this abortion decision, the easier it is to get people to understand, oh, the solution is we get universal health care now. And that's how we fix the problem, which I think is a really important thing. Well said, well said. Well, with that being said, we do have a great guest coming up, Dr. Mark Newman. And speaking of Medicare for all, he is the the he he supports Medicare for all more than anybody that I know. Uh, he's a doctor. Uh, he's the, the leading advocate for Medicare for all in the third CD race. Uh, he's an OWR endorsed candidate. And we're looking forward to giving you a great interview with Dr. Mark Newman. So uh, check us out. Stay tuned and listen to this great interview coming up. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Our Wisconsin Revolution podcast. As I stated before, we have our great guest, Dr. Mark Newman, OWR endorsed candidate and also a candidate for the 3rd Congressional District. How you doing, Mark? It's a good day, busy day. Just feeling like I got to keep my nose above water. Awesome, awesome. Well, we're really glad that you took the time out to interview with us. I think a lot of people will want to hear what you have to say and, and what your plan is for the third congressional district. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why you decided to run for the third congressional district? Sure. Um, people like to know who their candidate is because one of the critical issues that when we go to vote is can we trust the character? You know, we're looking at character. And then we're also looking at policy. I, I think that's when I go to vote. I want to know that about my candidates. So, and many times we just, we got to know, well, where'd you come from? What's your sort of bio history? And I came from uh, the flatlands of Illinois, but I didn't know it when I was growing up because I was on the river about 300 miles south of where I live now in La Crosse. And for a youngster, the bluffs looked like mountains. But then when I was meeting my wife, my uh, father-in-law, he said to his, to, my, uh, to his daughter, hey, Mary, where did you meet that flatlander? And it was a new idea for me. It hadn't occurred. When I was growing up in Wisconsin, I mean, in uh, Quincy, Illinois, I met Franciscans who were serving in our church. And their lifestyle meant a lot to me. It was a life of simplicity, living in fraternity, no personal ownership of property, and a, and a life of service. And those values made a big impression on me as a child so that after I finished college, I joined the Franciscans in order to live out those values. And it ended up that I was able to work in Africa as a, a missionary doctor up in the bushland or, you know, up country out of, out of town and doing basic health services over a period from the mid eighties to the latter nineties. And that made a big impression also on my life because during that time, Zaire, the country I was living in, became an almost complete failed state when the dictator Mobutu Sisi Siko died. And 
the government as it was, was replaced more by roaming militia groups and so forth. It was a hard time for me. And in the end, I came to the realization that my great over robust idealism that brought me to be a transcultural doctor wasn't necessary for living a wholesome life, that it was much simpler than that. And I learned that from the Africans that I was living with in the village where I was living. And so giving up my aspirations for being another Albert Schweitzer, I came home humbled and I met my wife and she kind of completed my healing. Mark, you don't have to be something special. Ordinary human is good. Anyway, we married, I, and that's how I got to, to Wisconsin. I married into Wisconsin, and we were living in Madison. And then I had a job opportunity in La Crosse to go there as a pediatric critical care doctor in 2010. And I like to say that's how I married into Wisconsin. That's how I got to Western Wisconsin. And um, that kind of tells my bio pretty, pretty clearly and quickly. But somewhere along the line, something else happened. And that was on January 20th, 2017. I was at work sitting there watching, here, listening to the uh, inauguration of our pre new president at that time. And I heard this fellow describe my country as an American carnage. And I heard his speech, not including me. Excuse me. And I heard his speech that wasn't including me. It was speaking to somebody else. And that disturbed me a great deal to the point that I went home a little bit distraught and decided that I needed to learn how to become a political, a politically engaged person. The next day I went to the women's march and then a couple of days later, I joined the local Democratic uh, County Committee. And somewhere along the line, guys, OWR started up and I joined OWR. But for the last five and a half years, that has been my project is to learn how to become a politician. And that's what I've been doing. I've been engaged in um, electoral campaigns, my own and others. And I've also been engaged in issue campaigns particularly Medicare for All has become a real important issue campaign that means a great deal to me. And when Ron Kine decided that he wasn't gonna run this time, I was kind of hanging back and seeing who's, who would be a good candidate to enter into our primary. But then I wasn't finding any of the candidates willing to speak loudly and strongly for that progressive issue of moving in the direction of Medicare for All. So it was my, plan at that point, well, we got to get that into the political arena because people are having more and more interest in the possibility of correcting our cruel and ineffective and inefficient uh, healthcare financing system. Um, first of all, fantastic story. Um, so my first question, you talked a lot about Medicare for all and obviously um, the Roe versus Wade decision that came out last week was you know is now like a very central part of of this course it's the big the big news going around mm -hmm. why do you first of all as a doctor why do you think medicare for all is the best system for our country why do you think it's important that we move that way and second of all in light of the supreme court decision why do you think it's important you know through the lens of abortion um to have universal health care in america 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, I people when they talk about Medicare for all, we like to get caught up in you know the the inefficiencies and the um, the costliness of it and the injustice of people making profits off of um, you know our essential need to receive health care. But I've come to the point of recognizing what's even worse and more cruel about the uh, commoditization of our healthcare delivery system is when we sell it like a sack of potatoes or a new car, instead of recognizing that that relationship between human beings, a patient and a therapist, someone who is wounded and a healer, that relationship is crucial, it's central to who we are as human beings. And sometimes people will um, disclose to their doctor or therapist or their healer things about themselves that they would be afraid to tell anyone else. There's that relationship of trust that is so central to what a physician and other therapists and nurses do that we are commercializing and we are demeaning it and destroying it and actually interfering with it because there is a whole industry that knows that we need to be able to engage with one another as human beings when we're weakened and ill or injured. And it's an opportunity to make a lot. And so what we're doing is we are profiteering off of something that is so critically central to who I am as a human being. And that's become the gravest uh, concern for me, why we need to make it a publicly financed insurance plan like Medicare is today so that the administration of payment can orient directly towards the benefits of the beneficiaries and not like our current system, which is oriented towards taking profits and putting them into investment portfolios on, on, on Wall Street. And as long as we have that crossed um, incentives, we can't do what's really essential to us and we're interfering with it and making doctors into villains in their relationship with their patients because they, inter they have all these confusions about payment. Now, when you add in this decision last Friday, you know, guys, I've been, <laughs> like I think a lot of us, uh, feeling sad about this. And universe, um, abortion care is standard of care. And it is part of comprehensive health care. And so a single payer system is going to provide comprehensive health care to all people. That means the comprehensive quality care when we need it without the hassle. That's the goal. But now you have this craziness that we are interfering and denying people their rights to care for their own body, which is essential to any medical decision making, is that everybody is the final arbiter and the driving force of decision-making about my care. And so we're saying to people, you cannot have standard of care, which is always as a doctor, the reference that I always had to follow that I owed to my, my patients, the standard of care, good quality care. And we're saying to people now, you can't get it anymore because in our country, we've decided that um, some people can or can't, and it's, it's just, that's the most aggravating part right now of, from the perspective of a single payer system, 
of having it interfered with with the decision. But the decision is way worse than even all of that. The decision is way worse because it's just emblematic of a much larger problem. And that is our tendency towards an oligarchy or even an autocracy. And it's just a symptom of that evolution that we're seeing right now. This decision from the Supreme Court is taking a big step in that direction, which is a much more cruel and big problem and threat to our democracy. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think a lot of people don't make those correlations between like what health care does and, the, and the, the situation with comprehensive health care of abortion. But I want to stay on topic of Medicare for All. We'll ask more questions than just about Medicare for All. But one of the the established thought processes processes in the neoliberal establishment is that as a as a candidate in Wisconsin, you can't run on Medicare for all. Um, and because it, it doesn't play well with, you know, mainstream uh, voters or rural voters. But I think that that just doesn't make any sense because it polls very high, especially with Democrats. And they even poll highs with independents and even some um conservatives so there's quite a bit of rural wisconsin in the third congressional district what do you hear from rural wisconsinites or even um let's say independents when you discuss medicare for all with them about the what it is how it works and how it would benefit them i had the advantage when we were going around doing our collection of uh, nomination signatures of talking to hundreds of people and i I didn't, you know, I didn't make a selection. I would just one door after another. And I would introduce myself. Hi, I'm Mark Newman. I'm a politician. <laughs> and go from there. And some of the people I could discern were likely uh, Republican voters. And sometimes I could discern that they're likely Democratic voters. And sometimes I, I couldn't discern, you know, whether they would have a tendency to vote one way or the other. But in the course of our conversations, what I discovered is that people across the board are showing way more interest in this notion of a single payer Medicare for all system. And people who were collecting uh, some of the nomination signatures during that process in April, May, as my surrogate, they would say to me, Mark, it's not hard to get signatures for you. It's all I have to do is say, you know, he's the only candidate that's advocating for Medicare for all. And the people being approached was like, hey, give me that pen. I need. So I guess these are all anecdotes, but it, it goes against that notion that you just described, Andre, that this is a third rail and you can't talk about it. But my interpretation is that it's the consultants that keep talking about that because they um, recognize that there's a lot of money power behind the interests that are most resistant to the notion of leaving the healthcare industrial complex. And those would be, you know, the monopoly um, hospital systems, healthcare systems, the pharmaceutical companies that don't wanna have a single payer telling them that they can't just have whatever price they can get away with. And of course the, the multitude of the patchwork, the balkanized private um, for-profit insurance entities, all these people don't want to leave. You know, they don't want to lose their golden goose. And 
And so they have a lot of power. And, and, the, and the consultants say, if you touch that rail, you're done. You're not going to have a chance to be elected. I think that's where it comes from. It's not from the people in my mind. I think that is really well said. Um, I, there are a lot of these issues that like the Democratic Party sees as, as third rail issues that, you know, candidates who, especially in states like Wisconsin, who stand up for them, things like Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, um, higher wages, canceling student debt, you know, they get chastised for saying, how do you expect to win in a swing district? Um, and I think that was part of like the big philosophy of, of like Ron Kind as a congressman was, well, I'm going to kind of pretend to be a Republican because if I'm a Democrat who pretends to be a Republican sometimes, you know, me being in a purple district in rural Wisconsin can win election more easily. Um, and, and, and in my opinion, you know, Brad Pfaff, who is the Ron Kind's kind of um, endorsed, like handpicked mm -hmm. successor. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a lot of concerns about continuing that philosophy of, of running as a, as a pseudo Republican when I think you and I both know that doesn't motivate anybody to leave their house and vote when they don't stand up for anything, when they flip their positions every five minutes, you know, that wh why, why go vote for anybody? Um, I think, so my next question, you know, touches on a few policy areas, okay. but, um, you know, you support a federal jobs guarantee. Um, you talk about a $15 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about a rent control standard and increased public housing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are, those are really good issues to run on. And I love that. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is you often see um, people that represent, you know, urban areas of the country running on those policies, things like rent control um, mm -hmm. and public housing. Um, I think you're one of the few people uh, championing those issues running in a rural area. Mm -hmm. What do you think the importance is of like advocating for, that increased housing and housing accessibility and those higher wages in rural parts of the state where, you know, they face a lot of those same issues, but I don't think those issues get the same kind of attention. You know, um, we, I think it's, I, I look at it in a larger picture and that is the greatest threat that we face now with the future of our democracy is the disparity of wealth that just keeps getting worse and worse. So you end up with more and more wealth and fewer and fewer hands. And the tendency is we're in the direct, we're going in the direction of oligarchy. And if you have a functional government, it's the government's job to counterbalance that, that direction. And that direction is a natural function of any of any free market because somebody who has a little bit of wealth is going to be able to get, get more wealth working within that free market at a rate quicker than somebody who has less wealth to begin with. So there's a multiplier effect. And that's gonna happen. And unless we have a functional government that can counteract that tendency, we either end up with an oligarchy or we end up with a revolution, you know, the French revolution, you know, people just get aggravated eventually with the injustice of it all. So unless we get a functional government that is counterbalancing that tendency, that's the direction we're going in. And so those programs that you just alluded to are exactly those kinds of things. It's moving that wealth back down the, um, the socioeconomic spectrum so that ultimately we can all experience the well-being of living as a human being on planet earth. 
It's the notion of Paul Wellstone that we all do better when we all do better because we as human beings need to be in a healthy, a thriving human community in order to individually be a thriving human being. And if you don't have a home, a secure place to live, if you don't have food security, if you don't have the opportunity to be, feel like you are an engaged person in your community, like a job or a purpose, you know, we cannot be experiencing the fullness of life. So my, my notion is that a functioning government takes the tendency for wealth and power to get concentrated in fewer hands and say through a progressive taxation model, not even so much because we need the money, but because we need to counteract that tendency to destroy our democracy. And then we uh, transfer that, uh, that power and that wealth uh, distributed. So it's wealth distribution ultimately um, in order to make it possible for our democracy to prevail because in order for it to prevail, we have to have an equality of power to at least some degree so that every voice can be heard. You know, I think that's a great point that you you've made, because a lot of people don't make that correlation is that when inequality expands, then also political inequality expands as well. Um, the greater the wealth gap, the greater the political, the political gap is, as as I was like to say, uh, because there's going to be more uh, influence of money in politics from those who have more money than those who don't. Um, so that's why you see politicians on the hours, what, on, on the phones, four or five, six, seven hours a day calling big money donors instead of campaigning with the regular ordinary class people. Um, so I think that's a really good point about why it's so important that we need to combat wealth inequality because it's directly leading to political inequality, which is a serious problem because it leads to distrust in government, at least to distrust in the system itself. Uh, in voting, everybody thinks everything is rigged. Everything is doesn't work for them, and I think it directly plays into the Republican narrative that government doesn't work. Um, so I think it's very important that we combat wealth inequality if we want to protect democracy itself. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought up that point. Um, so I also want to bring up something that was really cool. So you you joined uh, the Poor People's Campaign March on Washington. Um, I just kind of want to get your your perspective of what 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 was your takeaway from that? Why do you think the Poor People's Campaign March on Washington was so important to the to the the realities that we face today? Obviously, student debt is is at its highest levels. Wealth inequality is at its highest levels. Inflation is going up. Uh, healthcare inequality is is just exacerbated. So, why do you think? the Poor People's Campaign March on Washington was such an important event in this day and age. When I, when I went and joined that uh, trip to Washington, D.C., I went there as a listener, as somebody who needed to have his soul replenished, um, to be able to see clearly. Let's put it that way. And that re re even I was even reflecting on this. It relates back to my love for the Franciscan tradition because the originator of that tradition was this individual named Francis who lived in a little burg called Assisi in, in India in the beginning of the 13th century. But what he did, he was a rich, relatively for the economy of the time, young man who 
despaired of his father's wealth, and then he went to live among the lepers. And why did he do that? Because it was the place where he could see what was true and what was good, you know, in his religious fervor. But given all of that, it was the same sort of impetus for me was to go and listen to the people who feel that they are not seen, they are not heard, they are forgotten, and they are and even their government sometimes makes them feel that they are resented because they're poor. And from that perspective, we are able to see that is our compass. That is how we know how we can be as uh, servants in government, uh, potentially servants in government as candidates seeking that office. That is how we can see what we need to see in terms of where we're going to go in order to make our uh, dream of a democratic society function, a governance of the people, by the people, and for the people. And what you alluded to, Andre, is that we got it upside down where we have a system of, of um, attempted democratic process where the candidates and the electeds have to continuously grovel for you know, resources so that they can continue to campaign and it causes them to ignore the people that need to be the compass for the direction that we have to go in. And that is fatal to the possibility of going forward. So that's, that was what I wanted to tell the Democrats at the Wisconsin State Convention when I got my 600 seconds to talk. I said, yeah, it's right. We Democrats have a special role right now to do because it, we're at a sort of an existential point that we got to get through this hiatus, or we will end up with an autocracy. And so, but don't get too proud of yourselves because unless you can get, if, unless you can hold on to this compass that I was just describing, we're going to screw it up too. Also, we will also screw it up. So don't take yourselves too highly, but make sure that you really base yourself on the perspective of those who are left behind because that is the perspective that allows us to see where we got to go. And I think that's a really big issue with the Democratic Party is they, they don't see issues that way. They don't look from the, from the perspective of the people who actually need things to change. They govern from the perspective of the people who are already successful, which defeats the purpose of governance in and of itself. And I, you know, I think that you bring a really per important perspective to that convention as a candidate that I honestly don't think any other candidate held at that entire convention. Uh, and I think having that unique, being able to go up on stage and not caring and being like, hey, you guys don't, you know, don't sit here and think that you're the party of the working class. You need to actually go and listen and talk to these people because they feel alienated by both sides. And I think that's a really important message. And I appreciate you for sharing that. Um, so switching gears a little bit, you talked about your experience um, working as a doctor in Africa. Um, how, does, how did working abroad in, in different settings like that shape your view of like the ideas of American imperialism and American uh, exceptionalism, especially in parts of the world that you know are deeply, deeply affected by colonialism and imperialism, and still have effects to this day, um, you know, have issues of poverty and inequity because of those colonial powers. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exactly right. Um, we are so blind in our foreign policy, I guess is what I would say. Um, and you'll hear, you know, um, descriptions and explanations for foreign policy choices by America and the world. Um, we are promoting American interests. And I'm thinking, no, you're promoting corporation interests and resource extraction interests. And you're ignoring the, you know, the, the people who live in the regions that you think you're doing this, um, whatever, interventions. And when I think about how we use our, our military force, fundamental values of Americans, at least we hope and dream, is freedom and equality. You hear it, you see it in our original documents. But if you go to another country and you are oppressive to them, then you are denying the exact value of freedom because the opposite of freedom is oppression. And so when you go to a country and you are concerned about how you can extract benefits and, and resources and ignore the people, then you are destroying and counter, uh, um, living opposite to what we dream would be our core uh, American values. So I had a little anecdote. I, I was given um, $250,000 by USAID because they were doing what they called mini projects. And I was supposed to use that money to um, develop a healthcare delivery system. And I was kind of excited about the possibility, but it was at the same time that Mobutu Sisiko died and then the the army, the Zairean army started ravaging in the urban areas because they weren't getting paid. And the um, American Foreign Services, uh, they closed the consulate in Lumabashi and this project just sort of fell and went away. And as I reflected on it later, I said, Mark, you had the wrong idea. You thought that you were gonna do this great American project, this USAID project. You were gonna help you know, people in this country of Zaire with American resources. And I had to be responsible and have a good outcome. And when I reflected my experience that I just described, I said, Mark, you should have taken that $250,000 check, went directly to the, the chiefs of the villages that you were living among and say, guys, what are we gonna do with this money? Instead of being like, well, I have to figure it out. And it was, a, it was really stupid the way I approached it because the folks that live in the regions that I was able to participate, you know, to live among, you know, they're making their, they're, they are creating human life and well-being right there. And, you know, we would look at them and say, well, you're, you're very poor, but they don't see themselves as poor. They see themselves as thriving human communities. And so we have to start there in our foreign policy and not uh, presume that for some reason, I have a better perspective or the right perspective. And uh, I have to sort of um, direct other people because you know they're in a different economic status or something. We have to, first of all, fundamentally believe the dignity of every people, every person and community is the place to start in our foreign policy. For sure. I mean, I think, that that's kind of an interesting perspective because you never really understand what the lives are like from, you know, the foreigners perspective, because I mean, I got to be honest, like we live in a bubble here in, in, in the United States. We really don't get to see foreign perspectives like other countries. They know what happens in the U S but we have no idea what happens in other countries. 
But I think that's a very interesting perspective that they don't see themselves as poor or impoverished. So, I, you know, that's something that's kind of new to me. It's like we always feel like we need to be the world police and save everything. But that's not necessarily how it needs to be taken on. But, I mean, kind of in line with that and, and one of the main reasons why I think we have this foreign policy that is tailored towards corporations and which in my opinion our rightful name is united corporations of america but uh one of the main reasons i feel that it continues to happen is because the our current campaign finance system um it's incentivized for our politicians to gear policy towards corporations that donate to their super PACs or their PACs or their campaign coffers so I know you're you're really adamant about changing our campaign finance system in order to restore democracy. Can you talk a little bit about why it's important that we address campaign finance system and are other are the other candidates in this race even addressing it, if any or at all? Um, it's not uh, unfamiliar to most people, if not all of us today, for us to talk about are we experiencing a, another civil war? That was something that I remember writing about to Mike McCabe five years ago. It's a little memo. And you, you know, the talking heads and the opinion right article writers, you know, you see it talked about, right? And, and when I think about that possibility, it, it relates directly to what you're talking about, Andre. And that is what are the weapons of this civil war, in as much as that analogy fits. And for me, it is that marketing capacity, that marketing the capacity that results in very effective propaganda. And who can make that marketing capacity and make all that science of how do you convert a public opinion? Who can make that work? Well, it's the people with the power to do it. And as long as they have this power to distort public opinion in so many different ways, it makes it really hard for us to have authentic political conversation. And I think that that is the real danger of all of that wealth and power being concentrated in a few hands, because now they have the bazookas and they have the cannons and they have the, you know, of what, you know, that our, for, you know, our ancestors who fought in the mid 19th century were using muskets and you know, kinetic uh, attacks. Today, we use propaganda attacks on one another. And um, I, I honestly don't know what the solution is, but at least that's what I find as um, the danger. And then the other thing is the potential for corruption. So that in the context of um, the um, management of power, what I, I can't remember the quote of Martin Luther King. He, you know, he said that, um, you know, power without love is uh, reckless and cruel, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. So what we need to do is we want to have power that is directed by love. And so in this political arena, if all the power is being um, direct, directed in this battle of, of um, uh, of a war to promote self-interest and particular interest, special interests, then we have a very handicapped and distorted uh, ability to be truly a self-governing self people. And 
how do you how do you manage it how do you reduce it certainly i have a desire but if <laughs> i'm a member of owr that's what i do how about that that's a good start yeah it's a good place <laughs> to start i mean we're on the same page and we see the danger um yeah and and uh the second part of that question are any of the other of your opponents addressing campaign finance reform I'm trying to tick through them. <laughs> mm. You know, that gets back to that corruption thing, you know, that you, um, you know, you, it's just too easy to say, well, I'll make a little compromise here, a little compromise there, because, you know, I can get some more money, and then I can have a little bit more or stronger campaign. And so it's sort of in, insidious. I don't see anybody really confronting it as, <laughs> as a direct um concern i mean it even starts with as simple as you're never supposed to say um if i if i win you know that's the first lie you learn to say when i win you're supposed to that's your first lie <laughs> and and so it's it's always this ticking you know okay i'll make another i'll make another exception i'll make another transaction i'll compromise a little bit of my value so that you know um, I'll get a little bit more moolah in order to do something. And so it, it's insidious, but I don't see any campaign, even mine, I don't talk about it that specifically as the danger of, um, you know, I remember that was a really big theme for us when we worked on Mike McCabe's campaign. Yeah, most definitely. It's It's been a huge issue for me for a long time since I got involved in politics. It's been a huge issue for OWR and, and since its inception. But that was our last question for you. Um, Mark, I think you're a great guy. I love your passion and I love that you actually see the human in, in, in politics rather than, you know, seeing everyone just as a standard vote. Um, but I think what we continue to appreciate is that you advocate for things that would benefit the human um, rather than the corporation, which is not human. Um, I'll tell you one more story if you haven't heard this one. So a few years ago, my, my son, who was probably 12-ish 12, 12 years old then, he, uh, he approached me, he says, Dad, I got to tell you something. I said, well, you know, my son's got some wisdom to disclose to his father. Let's see what he's got to say. And he says, now you're getting into this politic and stuff, and you, you think you're going to go after some votes because you need votes to get elected. But you got to remember one thing, Dad, those votes aren't things. Those votes are people. And I was like, wow, my son doesn't fall far from the tree, right? <laughs> the apple doesn't fall far. But anyway. I always, I always love that little anecdote. Like, yeah, right that's on, awesome. Boy. Right on. Yeah, you're teaching him right. You're teaching him right. But somehow uh, he picked it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're we're happy to uh, endorse you. Is there any way uh, people can donate to your campaign or help out or volunteer if they're interested? Oh yeah. Um, obviously, we all all of us we establish um, sort of a central repository of uh, avenue for communicating, connecting to the campaign. Our, the website is easy to find, just my name, Mark Newman for Congress.com. You have to be careful there because there was another politician named Mark Newman. And we finally got mine, I think, coming to the top of the search window. It's uh, <laughs> just because of use. But yeah, it's uh, just my name for Congress.com. And uh, join us, you know, sign up. Um, I'm trying to do a little newsletter. In fact, that's on my mind today just to keep people in, engaged. And um, and then to participate, you know, one of the things that we did. Um, so here in La Crosse on Friday, 
um, there was a, a protest, a manifestation, you know, on Fourth Street, relative to the to the um, Supreme Court decision. We had eight hundred, a thousand people out on Fourth Street and chanting and holding signs and horns hawking, people walking. And I was going down the line. We got to vote. We got to vote. You know, we can sit here all day and hold signs, but we got to vote. We got to make it work. And then afterwards, I regretted that I didn't say all of it, what I needed to say. We got to organize. We got to organize. We got to vote. We got to vote. And what I wanted to suggest by that is get involved with a campaign. You like my campaign? Get involved with my campaign because we have to organize and just keep finding ways to um, relate to others because we function as human beings, as, as communities, and then vote. There you go. You have to do both. You can't just do one. Um, so if you live in the third CD and you're a citizen of the third CD, uh, definitely if you're if you love Medicare for all, if you want to see um, a $15 minimum wage, you want to see a Green New Deal, you want to see all these human perspectives involved in our political system. Go ahead and get involved in Dr. Mark Newman's campaign. Help them out. You can also help out through OWR as well, full disclosure. Um, but yeah, get involved and go ahead and go and vote for Dr. Mark Newman on the primary is August 9th, right? August 9th. All right. So remember that. Put that on your calendars. Go get registered to vote and, and make sure that you vote for Dr. Mark Newman. So we appreciate you coming on, Dr. Mark Newman. And uh, we hope to have you on again after you won the primary. And uh, appreciate you joining us today. Yep. Yep. You see, I, you see, I made that right. <laughs> there you go. All right, everyone. Yes. The, the end also, if you guys can join us, the OWR state convention will be on July 9th in Wausau, Wisconsin from nine to 4 PM. You can register on the website. So definitely come join us. You can come meet Dr. Mark Newman in person. Uh, he's more than just a voice on a podcast. I promise you. So, uh, you can definitely come and join and hang out with all of us. There you go. Everybody, you have a good day and tune in next time to the Arvis Conference Revolution podcast. Peace. struggling people dying every day's another headline while people cheating people lying leaving everybody else behind we can wait for somebody else to come along we can get on our feet and shout it right now is the moment we've been waiting for right now